Father, we meet in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless us in this hour. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we concluded the hour with John Calvin returning to Geneva, leaving Martin Bucer in Strasbourg, if you remember. Bucer, his mentor, as it were, for over three years in Strasbourg. Well, before the end of the decade, Bucer also left Strasbourg. He left uh, in 1548 for England. He crossed the channel to England at the invitation of the Archbishop of Canterbury, the, the, the head primate of the Church of England, and that was Thomas Cranmer. Thomas Cranmer, a name you may be familiar with. He was, he was largely responsible for the Book of Common Prayer, which is still in use in the Church of England today. Well, Martin Bucer, when he came to England, he became professor at Cambridge University, professor of theology there. But in addition to that, he worked very closely with Thomas Cranmer on the Book of Common Prayer. So uh, if you ever happen to have a copy in your hand and you're reading through all the prayers in the liturgy of the Book of Common Prayer, you can think not only of Thomas Cranmer, but of Martin Bucer as well, who, who played a large role in contributing to that. Well, as I said, he came to England, Bucer did, in 1548. Uh, he lived for only three more years. He died in 1551, uh, but two years later, in 1553, when Mary Tudor, the, the daughter of Henry VIII, when she assumed the throne, uh, she, she very quickly garnered the name, as, as I'm sure many of you know, Bloody Mary, because of her persecution of the Protestants. She was a rabid Catholic. And uh, she immediately went to work putting down all of the progress that the Reformation had made under Protestant leaders such as Cranmer and others. Well, along with 300 martyrs, more or less, uh, being burned at the stake during her reign, Thomas Cranmer was one of them. But also, the grave of Martin Bucer was opened up and under the orders of Mary. And uh, his bones were dug up, much like Wycliffe's were. Uh, in a previous century, and they were burned for heresy. So, so Bucer, though he died in peace, uh, under a peaceful Protestant reign, uh, his, his bones were, as I said, exhumed and burned for heresy just a couple of years later. Well, besides the, these 300 martyrs or so, there was, during Mary's reign, a multitude, upwards of 800 or so, uh, men and women, who fled the continent under that persecution. They crossed the channel and they found their temporary homes in some of the great reformed cities in Europe. Uh, Zurich, which, which we've looked at. Strasbourg, which we've looked at. The, the city of Bucer. Uh, Basel, the city of Ecolampadius. And then Geneva, the home of Geneva. These, these uh, exiles or refugees uh, came to these cities and began imbibing more Calvinistic principles of the Reformation. We talked about the regulative principle last week. That, that was a major component, along with the doctrines of grace, that they learned here in these Reformed cities after they fled England. Uh, they became a very important piece of English history in just a few years after Mary died. Well, as I said, many of them came to England. Calvin warmly received them there. Uh, Calvin was laboring ever since he returned in 1541 incessantly 
there were so many fronts that, that uh, he was dealing with in his work. Even before Bucer had left the continent, Calvin wrote to him uh, this, In what a whirlwind I am writing you. I am entangled in so many employments that I almost am beside myself. Well, there were many employments, and, and we, 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 uh, it, more has been left unsaid in, in this class, clearly, than, than could be said. There's so much that could be said, not only about Luther and Zwingli and the others and Calvin, uh, just so much more could be said. So, uh, but just to mention a few things that Calvin was, was entangled in, to use his words, are certainly his care of the church in Geneva. Uh, that was his first and foremost care, the people under his care, that he had been made an under-shepherd uh, over. Uh, not just the people in the church, but then on the other side, the magistrates, who were jealous always to maintain control of discipline and other things in the church, that Calvin, above all the other reformers, Bucer did not do this, Luther did not do this, Zwingli did not do this, Ecolampadius did not do this, he struggled to rest power from the magistrates that traditionally was in their hands, but he felt that scripture clearly gave to Christ and through Christ appointed to the leaders of the church. So uh, the fact that, 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 that we are free from state control uh, in a Protestant church is the legacy of all the reformers. It's the legacy of John Calvin. So we have him to thank, among other things, for the, for the freedom of worship. So the church in Geneva, that certainly was his first care. But then there was heresies that he had to contend with and would-be heretics. There were people like Sebastian Castellio and Jerome Bolzek who challenged Calvin's teaching publicly and forced him into a situation where he had to contend with them in a controversial manner. There was also the name that we've all heard, Michael Servetus, who was put to death in Geneva. Calvin was, did not play a small role in that, although he wasn't the principal Authority. It was the magistrates in that case. Uh, but that's a whole chapter that, that we just have to leave unread. But again, you can, you can look into these things for yourself. Uh, they're, they're fantastic narratives. Uh, so there was this controversial writing that Calvin was involved in. There was the division between Zurich and Wittenberg. You remember that from the, uh, the, the uh, colloquy of Marburg between Luther and Zwingli. Well, that division went on over the Lord's Supper and Wittenberg, the, the, the first major center of the Reformation, and Zurich, uh, who, which was also going along with it in a parallel way, they were never able to come together in unity against Catholic opposition. And that, that was a spur in the Reformation all along from beginning to end. And it was a, it was a wound that was never entirely healed. Calvin labored, again, incessantly to try to heal this wound and to be a mediating influence between the two to bring them together. And, and the, the, the fruit of his efforts, much was good, but in some ways he became an enemy of both camps in his, in his agreeing with either side at any point. The other rapidly said, oh, see, so you're agreeing with the other side. So as, as, as he attempted to mediate, um, he, he, he incurred ill will himself from both camps. Well, then there was France, his own home uh, state, not state, country, thank you, uh, his own country full of persecuted evangelicals that continued, even as he had English exiles coming into Geneva, the French exiles were coming in all the time. And one of the great episodes of the Reformation is how Calvin and his pastors took 
these French refugees and trained them as pastors and then sent them willingly, not against their will, but willingly back in to hostile France to preach the gospel and plant new, new secret churches. Uh, many of those became martyrs in France. So it's, it's a wonderful chapter, uh, very sobering, but very glorious uh, in the history of France, which is, a, a, as, a, as a country, never really received the Reformation. And the history going into the French Revolution kind of shows the difference. You look at the history of France, on the one hand, who remained Catholic in an official sense, and when you look at the history of England, which threw off the yoke of Catholicism and became Protestant, however moderate that Protestantism was, uh, there's a fascinating difference then between the subsequent history of France on the one hand and England on the other, and then the influence in America of the English tradition. It's all great, great history. But then there was his commentaries. He wrote a commentary before he died on virtually every book of the Bible. There were a few that he didn't. Revelation, Song of Solomon, I'm not sure there might have been a couple of others, but at least those two. So he was constantly laboring, constantly writing, all of these things. One of his great works, and that's what we're coming to now with great interest, is the Institutes of the Christian Religion, which, if you recall, he he originally wrote in 1536. It went through subsequent editions. Uh, He was always adding to it and rearranging the work to try to find just the right uh, balance to strike in the order as well as the content. The Institutes holds a place, the modern editor of this work says, the Institutes holds a place in the short list of all the books uh, that have notably affected the course of history. I should say the short list of books that have affected notably the course of history. So the Institutes, uh, we want to gather our thoughts this morning around this work of Calvin. The final edition, which was five times larger than the original 1536 edition, uh, was issued in 1559. 1559, just five years before Calvin's death, which came in 1564. Calvin says, I was never satisfied until the work had been arranged in the order that it is now set forth. So in four books, four books within the one work, uh, Calvin sets forth all of the great doctrines of the Bible. God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, uh, sin, the fall, salvation, faith, repentance. Uh, Did I say the Holy Scriptures? That's a major chapter in there. The Holy Scriptures, uh, the church itself, which comprises almost all of book four. Uh, The life to come and the glory to come. He treats virtually any doctrine in the Bible you can find laid out in detail. Uh, not in all the detail that it could be laid out, but nonetheless, it's, it's, it's a great book. Uh, an unfolding, as it were, of the five souls that we've been looking at. In essence, it was an explication of the five solas in, in much detail. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Sola Fide, Faith alone, Solus Christus. Uh, by Christ alone, sola gratia, by faith alone, or grace alone rather, and then soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone. And central in all of this, and this is what I I, I want us to concentrate more than anything else upon, is those wonderful works of God toward men in a way of salvation. So as as Paul sets them forth in Romans 8 in in the golden chain, as it's called, of redemption, election, effectual calling, uh, justification, sanctification, glorification, 
regeneration, all of, all of these great works of men, or of God rather, towards men in bringing us out of the power of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son. Well, you remember Calvin's statement. It was the title, in fact, of our first class. Well, Calvin said, there is nothing we are more unwilling to do than to bid farewell to our own labors and to give God's works their rightful place. That, that's the keynote of the entire institutes, to give God's works their rightful place. And that was the fruit of his lifelong labor. And it's, it's, it's written in to the institutes to bring out fully, this is what William Cunningham says of Calvinism in general, but it can be applied specifically to the institutes, to bring out fully and definitely the whole doctrine of Scripture concerning the place held in the salvation of sinners by the Father, by the Son, and by the Holy Ghost. And the conclusion of all this is, is that when this is contemplated, when we look in detail, comb the Scriptures for every act of God in the Father, specifically in the Son, specifically, and in the Holy Spirit, when we do that, there's nothing left. For men to claim for themselves. There's, there's, there's nothing left. All that's left for us to do is to behold, to adore, to glory in the riches of God in Christ Jesus. The unsearchable riches of God. And then to offer ourselves up to him. Body and soul. To offer ourselves up to him. Well, that was Calvin's goal in writing the Institutes. That this is the response he would evoke from the readers. So in his preface to King Francis... He says this, what is more consonant with faith than to recognize that we are naked of all virtue in order to be clothed by God, that we are empty of all good to be filled by him, that we are slaves of sin to be freed by him, blind to be illumined by him, lame to be made straight by him, weak to be sustained by him, to take away from us all occasion for glorying, that he alone may stand forth gloriously and we glory in him. It's a wonderful statement. And it sums up everything that's going to come in the body of the work. So, let's come to the first words of the first chapter of the first book. Calvin states uh, that all true sound wisdom consists in two parts, or two things. The knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. Anything that we can possibly know is in one category or the other. But, he says, the categories are not so separated that we can easily tell which comes first, the knowledge of God or the knowledge of ourselves. This is something of a quandary. We have to accept that we can't easily separate them. To think of ourselves, he says, in the very first place, when we think of ourselves, we are actually thinking of God in his works because we're made in his image. We, we, our whole being consists in and has its subsistence in the one God. But then on the other hand, we can't seriously think of God directly before, and this is Calvin, we can't think seriously of God before we begin to become displeased with ourselves. Man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he has compared himself with God's majesty. It's just, just a powerful statement. <clears throat> this knowledge of the majesty of God is is a foundation for Calvin. The, the knowledge of the majesty of God is the crucial starting point, uh, in his view, of all true piety in man. There's no such thing as piety in man without a deep sense of 
the majesty of God. But he says, as he moves on from this point, uh, though this knowledge, because we're made in God's image, because this knowledge is naturally implanted in man, uh, there's a problem. Sin has left it like the smothered ruins of, of a once glorious temple. We have this temple that God fashioned in the garden, and now it's just smothered ruins, uh, a heap of rubble. Therefore, he says, another and better help is needed. And this is the Holy Scriptures. And here he comes to his doctrine of Scripture, which is, is, is just one of the great parts. I'm going to keep saying that. One of the great parts uh, in the Institutes, because every major doctrine is one of the great parts. He treats it so masterfully. So he comes to the doctrine of the Holy Scriptures, in which he says, God opens his own most hallowed lips so that we feel the undoubted power of his divine majesty. And hence, we are drawn and inflamed to obey him. His, his sense of the immediate speaking of God when we open the pages of Scripture was very intense. And I love it. It's one of the things I love about Calvin. Uh, and it inspires the same kind of perspective when, when we open the Scriptures. We hear God speaking to us as if he were here, opening his mouth, or at Mount Sinai. Well, we're drawn and inflamed to obey him, but again, we find the majesty and the perfection of God so high that we can't raise ourselves to the level of obedience that he requires. And, of course, Calvin naturally asks the question that we all ask, but why, if we're made in his image, why do we fall short of his glory? And here he begins his great exploration on the fall and its consequences. Our depraved condition, the abyss, as he might call it. He said, this should truly overwhelm us with shame. Not just the fact that our mind is debased, but our will itself is depraved. So that we cannot will the glory of God, because we can't be pleased with it in our natural condition. And, And lacking that capacity to do anything for the glory of God, everything we do is sin. This this harkens back to very much of Luther's own arguments against the schoolmen. Everything we do, and this is counterintuitive to the natural mind, but everything we do is sin. Even the best things in the world that we can do, if it's not built upon the foundation of doing it unto God and for his glory. This is the major transformation that regeneration accomplishes so that a believer actually has in view the glory of God, albeit perfectly, uh, imperfectly. Nonetheless, in principle, the fundamental difference between the unregenerate, who is a very good person in this world, civilly speaking, and the believer who has many faults and yet has an eye to the glory of God. That's, that's the effect of regeneration. Well, he says this should truly overwhelm us with shame to study our own calamity since the fall. But this shame is the only path upward to God. And this is the work of the law. And here he begins, again, his masterfully full treatment on the law and its work uh, to expose our sin and to condemn us for our sin and in our sin. This is the work of the law. We, we had a sermon on this last week. Whoever, Calvin says, whoever is utterly cast down and overwhelmed by the awareness of his calamity, poverty, nakedness, and disgrace has, in fact, advanced farthest in the knowledge of himself. So here we come back to the knowledge of ourselves. For what do you have of your own but sin? And here he's quoting Augustine. What do you have of your own but sin? And then here he also cites the Holy Spirit's indictment on all flesh. Again, a text from just... Uh, last week or a couple of weeks ago. 
Not one is righteous, says Paul, says the Holy Spirit through the apostle. Not one is righteous, not one understands, not one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become unprofitable. And again, he's not, Paul's not speaking in an exaggerated style or speaking of this particular group of people. He's speaking in, in, in universal terms. With these thunderbolts, Calvin says, Paul inveighs not against particular men, but against the whole race of Adam's children to teach them that they have all been overwhelmed by an unavoidable calamity from which only God's mercy can deliver them. Well, now, after the way has been prepared, now is the time, as Calvin loves to say, for Christ to come forth. For Christ to come forth clothed in the gospel when we have grasped, in principle, our calamity, our abysmal calamity by the law. The situation, he says, would surely have been hopeless had not the very majesty of God descended to us, since it was not in our power to ascend to him. The very majesty of God descending to us. Well, here he begins, this is, this is another way of saying Christ in his two natures. The very majesty of God descending to us. So he begins his treatment on the doctrine of Christ, particularly in his two natures. Only he, says Calvin, who was true God and true man could bridge the gulf between God and ourselves. Only he who was true God and true man could be obedient in our stead. Since neither as God alone could he feel death, nor as man alone could he overcome it. We see then that our whole salvation in all its parts are comprehended in Christ. We should therefore take care not to derive the least portion of it from anywhere else. Let us drink our fill. And he's always exhorting. He's stating a doctrine and then he's exhorting. There's a seamless transition from doctrine to exhortation. And the exhortations are, uh, to me, so compelling, so inviting. So he says, let us drink our fill from this fountain and no other. Let our whole faith contemplate him. Our whole expectation depend upon him. Our whole hope cleave to and rest in him. Well, now he's presented the great object of the Christian's faith. So now he moves to faith. And he explicates the doctrine of faith and all of its accessories, if you will, all of the things that come with faith. Faith in its nature and its properties. How, he asks, how are the benefits that Christ received in his person, how are they obtained? How do, how do we get the benefits that Christ obtained in his person? For as long as he remains outside of us, then... We remain alienated from the life of God, for Christ is the life of God in the flesh. All the fullness of the Godhead bodily dwells in him, and we are complete in him. But how do we get in him? How do we get those benefits? That's a very famous quote, actually, from Calvin when he says, as long as he remains outside of us, then we remain bare of all of his benefits. So a vital union must take place. And here he's emphasizing this union with Christ. Some people say that this is the major keynote uh, of Calvin's theology is union with Christ. There's various opinions. I mean, you could say that about a lot of things. But he comes to union with Christ. There must take place this union between Christ in heaven and us on earth. There's this huge gap existentially between the two. And so for this, Christ sends his Holy Spirit. And here he begins the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, Calvin says, is the bond by which Christ effectually unites us to himself. He, the Holy Spirit, is the inner teacher by whose effort the promise of salvation 
penetrates into our mind. This is effectual calling. The great doctrine of effectual calling. This is a promise that is the promise of salvation that would otherwise only strike the air or beat upon our ears. Human teachers, human teachers would shout to no effect if Christ himself, the inner schoolmaster, did not by his spirit draw to himself those given to him by the Father. This is an extraordinary Trinitarian statement. If Christ himself did not by his spirit draw to himself those given to him by the Father. It's just wonderful, wonderfully succinct. Well, this drawing of Christ by the Spirit, this effectual calling, this, this inner drawing, is from our side, our faith. You, you see how the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the doctrine of faith cannot be separated. We distinguish them because one is the act of God, one is our act. But it's looking at the same communion from different directions. So when we believe, it's because Christ is drawing us through the Holy Spirit himself. Because we, before all eternity, were given to Christ by the Father. And now he's coming to get us, as it were, to put it in more crass language, to obtain the bride that the Father has provided for him. It's just a wonderful, wonderful story. So by the Spirit... It is by the Spirit that we're enabled to embrace Christ freely offered to us by the Father. And being thus united, that's how we are united, by our faith. But it's the Holy Spirit who is the great uniter, the bond, as Calvin says, between Christ and the soul. But being thus united to Christ by faith, we are reckoned just in his sight. What is ours becomes his, as Luther put it, and what is his, namely his righteousness, becomes ours, and thereby we are justified. And so now he commences on the great doctrine of justification by faith alone. But the peculiar thing about this faith, though we are justified by faith alone, faith is, is not merely the embrace of a day or an hour or a season. It's not this momentary decision, and then we just go on about life. Uh, that, that's not at all the nature and the property of faith. It's the lifelong career of the Christian. And so Calvin says, the root of faith can never be torn from the godly breast. Perseverance of the saints here. It clings so fast to the inmost parts that however faith seems to be shaken, its light is never so extinguished or snuffed out that it does not at least lurk, as it were, beneath the ashes. The incorruptible seed of the word of God brings forth fruit like itself whose fertility never wholly dries up or dies. For the godly mind will always rise up to say, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. This is the nature of faith. It's tenacious. It clings forever and ever and ever. It cannot be snuffed out. But also, faith like this, by virtue of its heavenly, holy nature, it's a holy faith, it cannot be content, Calvin says, with pardon alone. Cannot be content with pardon alone. It embraces Christ, he says, not only for righteousness, for forgiveness and peace, but also for sanctification. So now he dives into this great subject of sanctification. The same Holy Spirit who led Christ in this world leads us also to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to God. We are not our own, says Calvin, in one of his most famous passages here. 
We are not our own. And this is his own sense of not being his own and therefore chaining himself to the command of Christ. We are not our own. Let us not therefore seek what is expedient according to the flesh. We are not our own. Let us therefore, as far as we can, forget ourselves and all that is ours. Conversely, we are God's. Let us therefore live and die for him. We are God's. Therefore, let all the parts of our life strive toward him as our only lawful goal. Here's this exhortation again, arising out of the doctrine. Well, undoubtedly, this is our calling to offer up ourselves as a living sacrifice. We know that we're obliged to do this if we've been bought with a price. But Calvin says how weak, how unstable we are. He's continually coming back to this. The knowledge of God, he's glorying in. And then he turns to man and and our obligation towards him. How weak, how pitiable, how poor, how destitute we are in ourselves, as Paul himself said. I know that in myself, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but to do, to perform that which is good, I find not. O wretched man that I am. Well, this is just, again, the, the note that Calvin is striking here. Therefore, he says, true faith cannot be indifferent about calling upon God. The only stronghold of safety for us is in calling upon his name. So now he comes to the the great doctrine of prayer. And this is one of my favorites. I I, I know those words mean nothing after what I've said. Uh, You you know, you're like the boy who cried wolf. But his chapter on prayer is just so, so excellent and encouraging and inspiring. So he talks about prayer. He says, but even here in our prayer, our carnal nature bogs us down. Our flesh bogs us down. And therefore, even here, when we go to pray, the Spirit takes charge. Here comes the Holy Spirit again. Taking charge, leading us, as it were, by the hand. Even in the same way that the Holy Spirit took Christ by the hand, thrust him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is one of the great ways the Spirit leads us into prayer. Intimately, as again, as Calvin says, by the hand. And so we find, contrary to our own wishes, we find troubles. We find fears. We find troubles pressing upon us almost irresistibly. Why is this happening? But, Calvin says, in one of my favorite of his quotes, he says, the more harshly we are pressed and and full of troubles and fears and trials, the freer is our access to God as if he were summoning us to himself. I, I, just, I, just, I, I can't even express how encouraging that is. The freer, when we're full of troubles, the freer is our access to God, as if he were summoning us to himself. For when do temptations yield us a truce from hastening after help? This is our lot. This is where Christ has put us in order to draw us to him, perfecting us, preparing us to meet him in the new heavens and the new earth as a bride adorned for her husband. And so we pour out, he says, we pour out our whole mind and whatever lies hidden within into the ear of him who by his spirit has taught us to call him that sweetest of names, Abba, Father. Well, when Calvin is talking about these things, these trials, he's, he, it's very practical for him. While he was writing these things, he was, he was beset, as we already said, by innumerable pressures, constant pressures. Uh, To Farrell at this time, he wrote, Farrell who was in Neuchatel, the straits and difficulties which so weigh me down are immense. I am beset with a thousand briars. In one day alone, he says, 
I urgently prayed and begged God at least 20 times that he might let me die. This is Calvin's prayer to God. So beset is he by these things. To Melanchthon, back in Wittenberg, he wrote, You can scarce believe how I am burdened and incessantly hurried along. Nothing in this world could be more desirable to me than to take solace in the mild and gentle spirit of your correspondence. He, he loved that friendship, that benign mildness of Melanchthon that was so uncontroversial. Well, Melanchthon, just going to Wittenberg for a moment, Melanchthon, for his part, had for almost 30 years enjoyed the solace of the companionship of Luther. But in 1546, Luther died. In Feb- uh, February 18th, I believe, 1546, Luther died. And that was a monumental moment in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Protestants everywhere mourned, all over Europe. Melanchthon himself received the news while he was in his classroom at the University of Wittenberg lecturing on Paul's epistle to the Romans. He was right in the middle of a lecture, and a herald came in and shouted out the news that Luther had died. And eyewitnesses say that he, he, he visibly stopped and was stunned, Melanchthon, that is, and just didn't have words. And finally he cried out, Alas, the charioteer of Israel has fallen, reminiscent of, of Old Testament language. Well, four days later, Luther's funeral came, and Melanchthon was, was the one who, who, who gave the eulogy of Luther. And uh, he mentioned his faults. He didn't hide Luther's faults. Everybody knew what they were. But he said, multitudes of saints will praise God to all eternity for the benefits which have accrued to the church by the labors of Luther. And that's a very true statement. Undoubtedly true. Well, to return to Calvin and to conclude with, with our very, 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 very brief treatment of the institutes, he comes, he comes at last to what in the order of God is first, and that is election. Divine, eternal election. The root and the spring of all the grace in the soul. So this is what Calvin says. Now it behooves us to pay attention to what Scripture proclaims of every person. No exception. When Paul teaches that we were chosen in Christ before creation of the world, he takes away all consideration of real worth on our part. It is just as if he had said, since among all the offspring of Adam, the Heavenly Father found nothing worthy of his election. He looked about everywhere, cast his eye about, nothing worthy of his election. Therefore, he turned his eyes upon his anointed, his beloved, to choose from him those whom he was take, to take to himself in the fellowship of life. And this is, all this is, is a commentary on the first few verses of Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us by adoption or to adoption by Jesus Christ unto himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, which he purposed in himself, that we should be to the praise of his glory, having made us accepted in the beloved. That's all that, that he's saying here. It shouldn't be controversial for the Christian or for the church. It is, sadly, because of carnal thinking. It should not be controversial. It couldn't be more explicitly stated by the Apostle Paul. And Calvin is only taking after Paul's words here. God, therefore, says Calvin, God, therefore, finds in men themselves no reason to bless them, but he takes it from his mercy alone, from his grace alone, sola gratia, The salvation of his own is his own work. We must learn how much our ignorance of this principle of election, how much ignorance of this detracts from God's glory, 
how much it takes away from true humility on our part. Nothing else will make us humble as we ought to be, nor shall we otherwise sincerely feel how much we are obliged to God. We shall never be clearly persuaded as we ought that our salvation flows from the wellspring of God's free mercy until we come to know His eternal election. Well, that's, we'll end there with the Institutes. Uh, there's so much more in there. I heartily encourage you, uh, pay whatever it costs. Get it. Read it in your spare time. It's a big work. Uh, but open it up anywhere and read it. Very, very good. Well, the Institutes, as I said, was completed in the year 1559. In this very year, the Protestant Queen, Elizabeth, ascended the throne across the channel in England. So now it's the Elizabethan era that is commencing, a very great era in the history of England and in the history of the world, for that matter. So Mary was dead. She had reigned for six years, from 1553 to 1558. No, five years. Sorry, five years. The bloody reign was over. That was the signal for the mass of the English exiles that had made their home for several years in Geneva, in Zurich, in Strasbourg, in Basel, in Frankfurt, in many other cities, but particularly we're thinking of Geneva, it was the signal for them to go home, to go home to England and uh, re-enter the ranks of the church there. Calvin's modern biographer, Bruce Gordon, says this about these exiles returning. Those who had been in exile in Calvin City never forgot the experience. It marked them for life. They remained committed to what they had been taught there and never felt comfortable in the compromised world of the Elizabethan settlement. What what Gordon is getting at is that what you have crossing the English Channel, this mass, hundreds of of, uh, exiles, schooled in the school of Calvin and and others, uh, this is the first generation of Puritans, of English Puritans, even before they had the name. Even before they had the name. Well, that's, that's another story entirely, and it's a great one. Well, Calvin himself, as I said, died five years later after this final edition, May 27, 1564. When Farrell heard the news of Calvin's death, and, and Farrell himself was to die just in the very next year, but this is what Farrell said. Oh, why was I not taken away in his stead? And he preserved to the church, which he has served so well, and in combats that have been harder than death. He, that is Calvin, has done more than anyone, surpassing not only only the others, but himself also. I love that statement. Surpassing not only the others, but himself also. it's, It's very reminiscent of what Melanchthon, if you remember, had said about Luther. Uh, at the time of the Diet of Worms. Melanchthon had said about Luther, every time I contemplate him, I find him constantly greater than himself. Well, the true explanation of this in both cases, in Luther and in Calvin, and in all the great reformers, the true explanation is given by John Knox, who was the great Scottish reformer, who we haven't mentioned at all in this class, Uh, But he was one of those exiles in Geneva. He was a Genevan exile. He worked closely with Calvin, learned much from Calvin, and then went back to Scotland. And the Scottish Reformation is all the result of that. Well, this is what John Knox says about the Reformation. Summing it up in a single sentence, he says, God gave his Holy Spirit to simple men in great abundance. And that we could say of Calvin. We could say that of Luther. That's why they were greater than themselves. We could say 
We could add Paul's testimony when he spoke of him being given the dispensation of the grace of God, that he should preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Why? Because the power of God, he was striving, Paul said, if I can recall it, he was striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily, is what Paul said. And that's the secret of the efficacy and the power of the church in this world. It was then and it is to this very day, which is why we study the Reformation, to, to help us to realize that uh, these are possibilities for us in our day. Well, that's the Reformation. That's all we have to say about it in this class. But the field is wide open for our study anytime we please. So let's close in prayer. We bless you, Lord Jesus Christ, for your work in your church. And we glory in the fact that this is infallible work. It is not subject to to our weaknesses at last. Though you work through our weaknesses at last, the church infallibly will rise up and the church militant will indeed become the church triumphant and your beautiful bride presented to you on that great day. We thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ and we ask especially now for your spiritual influence on us in the hour to come as your word is preached. May we hear it, even as we've heard Calvin say, as if you yourself, O God, were opening your hallowed lips and speaking to us as if you were actually here because by your spirit, you, our Lord Jesus Christ, are here. We praise you. We thank you. Help us to offer up ourselves, soul and body to you. Amen.